We begin a new series today in the book of Daniel. We've entitled it In the Crisis, and we're going to begin by reading uh, chapter one just now. If you have a Bible on your phone or you have a Bible with you, why don't you open it up and, and follow through, and the words will also be on the screen. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of, from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring the, to the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, I'm afraid of my Lord, the King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? Then the King would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. We end there giving thanks to God for his word and how he continues to speak to us today. One of the most humiliating chants that you can hear coming from the opposing fans to you as you stand with your own fans in a football stadium. One of the most humiliating chants that you can hear is, shall we sing a song for you? 
shall we sing a song for you? The implication being is your team aren't doing anything that would encourage you to sing. There's nothing to sing about from your perspective. Either that or you only have three fans anyway, that there's a small number of people supporting the team that you support and there's not much volume coming from your side of the ground. And so the opposing fans start singing, shall we sing a song for you? There's nothing for you to sing about. There's not many of you. And therefore, they taunt you with this kind of abuse. Having followed Carrick Rangers for a number of years, I am familiar with being on the receiving end of this kind of singing because there aren't many Carrick Rangers uh, supporters and they don't really have an illustrious history or give us much to sing about. And so I hear fans singing, shall we sing a song for you? And as you read the opening verses of the book of Daniel, you could almost imagine You could almost imagine Daniel's enemies, the people of Babylon singing, shall we sing a song for you? Because for God's people, it's utter defeat. Total and utter defeat. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The precious vessels that were in the temple of God have been taken and put in the good room of the Babylonian gods. We've got all your precious treasure. We've destroyed your city. We've taken captive the cream of the crop. All the intellectual elite have been taken captive from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. God's house had been plundered. These young people were enlisted or enrolled in an education program that was designed to obliterate their identity, to cause them to forget Jerusalem and to forget their Jewish identity, to forget that there even is a God in Israel. They were to become so intoxicated with Babylon that they would forget about their home city in Jerusalem. This was utter defeat. What we're going to see is that for God's people in crisis, defeat is often the most accurate present word. Defeat is often the most accurate present word, but it is never the most accurate promised word. We have a future hope. No wonder the psalmist writes in Psalm 137, verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What is there there worth singing about? In Babylon, as the people of God, as you've been taken captive, as your city lies in ruins, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Humiliating. Shall we sing a song for you? You're not singing anymore. That's what the people of God are likely to hear in this environment. Defeat. They were living in crisis. They were in a new place. They were receiving a new education. They even get called new names. Daniel means God is my judge, right? Israel's God, Yahweh, the Lord is my judge. And his name gets changed to Belteshazzar, meaning may bell, may Baal protect his life. Baal is one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah means Yahweh, right? Israel's God. Yahweh is gracious. He gets renamed Shadrach, meaning Aku, one of the Babylonian gods. Aku is exalted. Mishael means who is what God is. In other words, like there is no God like the God of Israel. Mishael, he gets renamed Meshach, meaning who is what Aku is. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper, and he gets changed to Abednego, the servant of Nebo, who is, yes, you guessed it, a Babylonian god. Imagine 
This might be difficult for you, but imagine living in a society where you could tell a person's identity or religious persuasion by hearing their name. <laughs> right? I know that's a bit of a challenge, but imagine, just for a moment, imagine living in a culture like that. And your name aligns you with one particular culture. And all of a sudden you were taken captive and they changed your name from Billy to Sean. Right? Just imagine that. that. Imagine your name was changed so that it took your loyalty from where you were truly loyal to another type of loyalty. That's what's going on here. These four young men from Jerusalem nobility received new names. And they look up and they don't recognize the color of the curbstones of the place that they find themselves in. And actually, as they look at the murals, they, they don't recognize the heroes on the murals either. And actually, the heroes on the murals are their enemies, stories that they've been told about their enemies. And they're thinking, our identity has been completely obliterated here. What are people calling us? What are we being taught in school? They seem to have accepted it all. They take the new names, they take the new education, they have no choice about the captivity, but hang on a minute here. They request a different diet. What's that all about? They want a different diet. Daniel, first of all, asks the chief eunuch to give him just vegetables and water, and he's like, no way. If the king sees that you are like weaker, frail, than all the other guys, then I'm for it. But Daniel is not dissuaded. He, he asks the servant of the chief eunuch. He goes to the steward and says, well, what if, what if we do it for 10 days? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. No, you, you, need, you need to eat the food, right? He rethinks it. And he goes politely, do you notice that? He's polite. He's not demanding, he's not arrogant. He asks in a, in a humble way and he goes to the steward and asks if him and his four fresher friends in this Babylonian university can have a different diet, just give us vegetables and water, not the king's food. Maybe Daniel didn't want the food because it would bring him into fellowship with a pagan king. You know, like if you eat something that someone else eats, it kind of draws you into connection with him. Maybe Daniel knew that the food had been sacrificed, you know, the animals had been sacrificed and the meat offered to idols and he didn't want to eat because it would, you know, contravene his, his own conscious in ter- conscience in terms of eating, that he, he didn't want to do that. Or, or maybe the food was ceremonially unclean and lots of people have different opinions about this stuff. But I believe that it's more likely that Daniel knew that by eating the food, he would be eaten up by the enticements of an alternative kingdom. That if he ate the food, he would also have to swallow the values of the king. And he didn't want to do that. And so he determined not to be consumed. Not to be consumed by the culture around him. It's more likely that Daniel knew that by eating the food, he would be eaten up by all that the king wanted him to become. He chose a menu of pulses rather than a meal from the palace because he wanted to remind himself and others that God was the one who sustained his life, not the king. Daniel knew that the things that we consume end up consuming us. I'll just watch another episode. I'll just put another thing in the Amazon basket. I'll just flick open Instagram here and scroll for seven hours. Oh my goodness, where, where did the time go? The things that we consume 
end up consuming us, unless we have resolve to say, I'm not doing that, unless we have resolve to put a marker in the ground, at some point, then we will be consumed. The famous quote from Fight Club, the film says, the things we own end up owning us. Daniel resolved not to eat the king's food so that he would not be consumed by Babylonian culture. Would he swallow the king's views as well as the king's food? Daniel resolved to act distinctively, to to instill some discipline in his life so that he would stand out, to keep his mind and his heart from being polluted by Babylon. Imagine students thinking about what they eat. When I was at university, I survived on pot noodle and dalmeal pasta, stirring sauce, right? The occasional kebab. And this is like, he's he's thinking clearly about what he's going to eat because he thinks this is going to be a, a situation where I can remind myself of who I am, of whose I am. What about you? What are the, you know, as Daniel sat down to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he was saying, I'm from Jerusalem. God is my king. God is my judge. Call me what you want, but God is my judge. Give me a new name. Give me a new postcode. You're not going to change who I am. I'm not going to be called anything other than God calls me. Call me whatever name you like. Put me wherever you want. But I am resolving to remind myself that God is ultimately my judge. Their very food perpetually reminded them of Jerusalem. What about you in in the week ahead? Are there points that you could plan in the week ahead to to put a marker down just in your own life and in your own heart, like at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? What could you do? Could you pray? Could you open the scriptures? Could you do something at those distinctive markers in the day that would remind yourself of, of whose you are, of where you belong? Could you just say a simple prayer? Each meal would be an opportunity to be reminded of who was really sustaining them, who was really to be feared, you just pause at each mealtime and say, I belong to Jesus? Could you pause at the beginning of the day before you set your foot out of bed and say, I belong to Jesus? Or before you step into your bed at night, I belong to Jesus? These young men took time. These young men had resolve and they acted distinctively. Thank God for whatever influence was on their life. You know, as we're thinking there about raising faith in the home, thank God for whatever influence was on their life that got these university students, these young men to say, yeah, put all this on us, but we're we're not going to eat the food. We're, We're just not going to do that. Pray that we would be the people who would raise up faith in the next generation so that our young people would take a stand. In the Garden of Eden, it was Adam, wasn't it, who who was consumed by a lie, didn't just consume forbidden fruit. He was consumed by another kingdom where he could make the the calls. He could make the calls and and call the shots, that he would be in charge, that he could eat whatever he liked. He capitulated to a creature rather than surrendering to his creator who said, don't eat it. And here in Daniel's life, we see resolve that shows us a glimpse of how to flourish in exile. Do you feel far from home? Do you feel like this world is not your home? Do you feel like, I don't really fit? How do we flourish? Later in Israel's history would come one who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, who would fast for 40 days and 40 nights and and would be tempted by Satan. Turn the the rocks to bread. You're hungry. If, If you are the Son of God, questions his identity. 
If you are who God calls you and not what other people think of you, turn the, turn the rocks to bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Who is it that sustains you? Who is it that sustains me? Are we going to be consumed by the culture around us? We've just been through the Easter season where we think about God's ability to sustain us. Think about his ability to care for us and, and look out for us. You know, not even the cross could extinguish God's care for his son Jesus. Not even death could put the promise of God to an end. Long before God's son became incarnate and stood up to temptation, Daniel was an example of what it was like to be sustained by God, to sacrifice, to say no, to be obedient, not to capitulate to the culture, not to be consumed by the culture, but to stand against it. And the outcome of this resistance in the Babylonian culture was that Daniel and his friends stood out as being healthier, stronger, in better appearance than those who ate the king's food. The chief eunuch understandably assumed that they would be worse, but actually obedience to God meant that they were superior to their peers. Daniel chapter one, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Obedience matters. Not being consumed by the culture around us makes us more effective not less effective, makes us more useful to the culture, not less useful. They were sustained by God and rewarded for their obedience. God cared for them in exile. God cares for you in exile. In a place where you are in the minority, in the place where you feel it would just be easier to go with the flow, God cares for you. God sustains you. God protects you. They were not consumed by the culture. And that's an encouragement from this passage. They were not consumed. But secondly, and, and importantly, they were not confused. It would be easy for Daniel and his friends, wouldn't it, to think, God's abandoned us here. God has neglected us. They, they could be confused into thinking, God has maybe more important things on his mind. He's maybe distracted. Maybe there are more important people that he needs to think about. And they could think that God had forgotten him. That this total overthrow of Jerusalem and the current captivity was a sign of God's abandonment. He mustn't really care. Do you feel like that? You feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You feel like you bring stuff before God and it continues to spiral out of control rather than getting better. It gets worse and you think, he's just, he's just walked away. God has had enough. I know I feel like that at times. And yet when I read God's word, in chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God has not abandoned Daniel. God has not neglected Daniel and his friends. And he's not abandoned you. He has not neglected you. He hears your prayers. Verse 2 of chapter 1 is really interesting. I don't want you to miss it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Who's really advancing this story? Who's really writing the story of Daniel's life? I'm sure if you asked Daniel, he would say Nebuchadnezzar. It looks like he's the boss. He's the charge. 
He's the one that's calling the shots. But verse 2 says, The Lord gave King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. If you read Daniel chapter 1, you'll see, I think, three or four occasions where it says, The Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. The Lord is the author of Daniel's story. The Lord is the author of your story and mine. The Lord gave. So you might look at your circumstances and think divorce gave, cancer gave, unemployment gave, the pandemic gave. But ultimately, the Lord is the one who writes your story. Now, God is not the author of sin. He is not the author of sin. He does not give evil into your life. But he is the one who writes your story. He is the one who is in control. And it's not the testimony that we see over and over again in Scripture. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him as a slave into Egypt? And at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 45 and verse 5, when his brothers recognize who he is, and Joseph is now in a position of authority and power and able to give them food to save them in a time of famine, and the brothers think, oh no, he's powerful and we're weak. He's going to crush us. He's going to kill us. He's going to get his revenge. And Joseph says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. So who sold Joseph into Egypt? Joseph says, you sold me here. But also in verse 45, he says, for God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. Genesis 45, 45. Who was responsible for Joseph? It's a good question to ask in Sunday school. Who was responsible for Joseph being in Egypt? His brothers or God? According to the passage, the answer is both. 100% the brothers did it. 100% God did it. And this is the mystery of Christian faith. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty are in Scripture, and there is no explanation other than this is how God operates. Were the brothers guilty? Yes. Did God send Joseph into Egypt? Yes. God is in control. He is the one who is writing the story of your life. Defeat is often the most accurate present word about your circumstances and mine, but it is never the most accurate promised word. In whatever crisis you face today, in whatever situation you find yourself in, in the particular area that requires faith to believe more than your eyes can see, God is in control. You're maybe holding your tongue because you think, I need to exercise restraint here and not let loose. God sees that, God knows that, and he applauds your discipline. There's maybe a situation in a a relationship where you need to show mercy again or forgiveness again and you feel like this is costly to me. I've done this before and it hurts to swallow my pride, to humble myself and to reach out my hand again in relation. Well, you don't reach out your hand anymore to anyone, do you? (laughs) Maybe there is a situation where the posture of your heart needs to be merciful towards someone who has wronged you. God sees it, God knows it and he will reward you. Maybe in work there is a situation where you're refusing to compromise. I read this week about someone who would not sign off on syringes that were faulty because she was a, an inspector, like a quality control inspector, and she saw that the syringes were faulty, and she would not sign off. And her boss pressurized her to sign off, and she said, I will not sign off on those syringes. And he said, well, I'll give you the weekend to think about it, and if you come in on Monday and you've got the same decision, you will no longer have a job. What would you do? Her husband was studying full time and they needed that salary. 
what that young woman did was that she didn't sign off on the syringes when she came back in on the Monday morning. She lost her job. And a few weeks later, the company that were due to get the syringes didn't get them on time and investigated the situation and wondered what, what happened there. And they got to the bottom of it. They realized that this young woman would not sign off on the syringes. And they employed her and gave her much more security. It's costly. What are the things that you will not compromise on? It felt like defeat when she lost her job. I'm sure it did. It would be much easier just to sign off, wouldn't it? Defeat may be the most accurate present word, but it is not the most accurate promised word. You can see in this section of Scripture that Daniel's far from home. He's in exile. You can see his name changed. You can see him being indoctrinated by a pagan education course. You can see all over the Bible that the people of God feel like they're in situations where they're losing, where it's defeat, but the defeat is never final. The defeat is never final because we serve a God who proves his faithfulness again and again and again. Do you think that when Jonah was you know, thrown overboard into the depths of the ocean that the pagan sailors looked over the ship and thought, oh, it's okay, there's a big whale going to come along and rescue him? It looked like defeat. When Jonah was swallowed by the big fish, was he thinking, great, in three days' time I'm going to land out on a beach because that's when the whale will deliver me? No. It felt like defeat. He was swallowed. He was dead. It was judgment. It was over, but he was vomited out three days later. When Moses came to the Red Sea and all his enemies are behind him, and he's thinking, if we go in here, will the waters part? No, he's thinking, if we go in here, we drown. It felt like defeat. When Goliath stands before a little boy called David who has a sling and a stone, do you think David's thinking, everyone else looking at this situation going, oh, it's okay. The little kid's going to win. It looked like defeat. Do you think when Jesus went to the cross, his disciples thought, victory? The feeling of defeat is a familiar experience for all of God's people. But we can be confident that it's not the last word on our lives. If you're experiencing what feels like loss this morning, maybe grief, maybe disappointment, maybe frustration with your present circumstances, don't be confused and assume that God has abandoned you. This is always the way for God's people. And so I know it sounds kind of ironic to say it, but defeat is evidence of God's faithfulness in your life and mine. The feeling of loss. This week I read these words, do you love God? then you can be most sure that his holy, wise, and perfect providence will work for your good and his glory. I have a huge problem with people who preach a prosperity gospel who say to Christian people, this is your best life now. I have a huge problem with that. And the reason I have a problem with that is because I think about people that I speak to on the phone who love Jesus. I think about people who I used to call with in hospital think about conversations I've had this week with people who are grieving and it would be pastorally like unthinkable for me to tell those Christian people this is your best life now I want to say to them this is not your best life now this this life here on earth this is your worst life now the best is yet to come the evangelistic Christian message that we have to people who are lost is this is your best life now the only way that your best life now is now is if you do not know Jesus. The best is yet to come for all who trust in Jesus.
No hope to people experiencing defeat now to preach or to say, this is your best life now. Best is yet to come. It's biblically unfaithful to say to people who love Jesus, this is the best there is. We experience defeat. We experience loss. But we have hope that our present situation is not our promised situation. People in crisis, defeat is often the most accurate present word about your circumstances. But it is never the most accurate promised word. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Faithfulness. If you're having trouble, Jesus is faithful to his word. If you're having trouble right now, this is evidence of God's faithfulness and reliability. He said it would be this way. Present defeat, but promised victory. Don't be confused. Don't assume that because your situation is difficult or disappointing or frustrating now that God is looking away, that God has abandoned you or God has neglected you. And so Daniel's like, call me whatever names you want. Call me whatever you want. Put me wherever you want, but I belong to God, the eternal one who is faithful at all times. You will not have the final say on who I am. And so Jesus, when he shows up, when he is, becomes incarnate and people start saying, is he maybe Elijah or is he John the Baptist? And he says, you know, to Peter, who do people say I am? And they're like, well, they'll think of lots of different names. But ultimately, what matters about Christ's life is when God the Father says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It doesn't really matter what other people think of him. It's God's verdict on his life that matters. And it's the same for you and me. In chapter 1, verse 20, we see the vindication of Daniel's resolve not to defile himself and completely assimilate to the culture around him in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. It says they were actually, in the, in the Bible translation, it says they were 10 hands. So with their two hands as an individual, with two hands, they could do the work of 10 hands. They could do the work of five men. It's really challenging, isn't it? Because I know when I find myself in a difficult situation, I think it's an excuse to down tools. I'm like, well, this is really hard, so I'm not going to give myself to it. I'm, I'm not going to commit to the environment that I find myself in because it's tough and because people have wronged me, and so I'm not going to give it my all. Daniel becomes incredibly useful in Babylon. He blesses that place. He isn't paralyzed by the crisis. He engages in it fully. He trusted God and ended up being a blessing to the people around him. He was in a context where he didn't recognize the curbstones and the murals and all the names were different and he was getting called a different name and I'm sure it was uncomfortable to him. And everyone else was eating the king's food and he was eating vegetables and drinking water. Don't become self-absorbed. I know know that temptation so well. Don't become self-absorbed. Trust that God sees your circumstances and he will enable you to live for him regardless of what's going on in your life. May you know his faithfulness. We know that he works for the good of those who love him in all things. In all things. You can be a help to those around you. We know, don't we, that many years later, many years after Daniel found himself in Babylon, Jesus would come to a hostile people who would call him names, who would humiliate him, 
He would experience defeat and loss at the cross. They would accuse him of being demon-possessed or say that he was from Beelzebub. And their verdict on him was not lasting. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 34, my food, my food, what I'm going to be consumed by, what I'm going to eat, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his word. Defeat is often the most accurate present word, but it is not the most accurate promised word to you and me. And so whatever situation you go into this week and you maybe hear, you know, you hear reminders of your defeat or, or your loss and it feels like people are singing, shall we sing a song for you? You're not singing anymore. You can say, no, it's all right. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, I'll be singing when the evening comes. That's what we were singing earlier on. That is our confidence. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Victory is assured. Defeat may be your present word, and that's okay. But it is not the promised word of God for your life and mine. The best is yet to come. Let's take a moment to pray. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we find hope, encouragement, grace. But most of all, we thank you that we find Jesus, the one who saves. We thank you, Lord God, that you don't patronize us or speak down to us. We thank you that you don't compare our circumstances with others and tell us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You acknowledge the pain that we experience. You acknowledge the defeat and the loss that is ours. And you say this is an accurate description of your present circumstances, but it is not your promised circumstances. It is not the promised word of God. The promised word of God is a world without tears and pain, without grief and sadness. The old order of things will pass away. The dwelling of God will be with men and we anticipate that day. In the meantime, we pray you would help us not to be consumed by the culture around us, but to stand out as your people, not to be confused that our difficulties are evidence of your abandonment, but rather evidence of your faithfulness because you said it would be this way. Help us to find ways in the week ahead to mark ourselves out as your people, not to forget who we are, but to be reminded that we belong to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.